The president halts a railroad strike. Lawmakers shield gay marriage. And Democrats shake up the road to the White House. To consider this week's news, the analysis of Brooks and Capehart. That's New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. Hello to both of you. Hello. I'm so glad you had a good Thanksgiving meet. You just reassured me that that, 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 <laughs> that, that was the case. Um, let's start, Jonathan, with the newest news, and that mm -hmm. is what the Democratic Party is doing. They took a vote today. They are moving up South Carolina. This is the primary calendar in 2024. It's uh, a ways away. It's more, a little more than a year away, mm -hmm. but with big consequences. What does it say to you? South Carolina, Michigan, earlier, Iowa. Well, I, well, right. It's more than a, just moving South Carolina up. It's a, it's a total reorganization uh, of the calendar and cramming a lot in in the month of February. So with South Carolina going first, clearly what the, what the party wants to do is make sure that the first state that votes in a presidential primary election is one that demographically looks more like the country than, I, say, Iowa. And with, if memory serves, about a quarter of the electorate in South Carolina is African-American. And so that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think there are a lot of people within the Democratic Party, especially after the debacle of the Iowa caucuses in 2020, were really pushing for a state more representative of the country, having a say early, if not first, about who the nominee of the party should be. And David, this is something pushed by President Biden. What do you make of it? Well, if anybody had any doubts that Biden is running for re-election, I think they were ended today. Like, <laughs> he like took over the whole primary process. The state to go first is the state he's probably most likely to win of all the 50 states. It propelled him last time. Mm -hmm. And he just said, no, you're, we're gonna do it my way. And whatever you guys have been talking about, that's nice, we're gonna do it my way, and he has prevailed. Uh, and so, you know, I think for the reasons Jonathan said, it's not only ruthless politics, but it's also probably the right thing to do. The one lament, because we want states that are a little more diverse up, up front, the one thing I do lament, aside from the fact that I like going to Iowa and New Hampshire, <laughs> uh, it's very comfortable and beautiful. I, I, the people are very earnest. Um, but I lament the possibility that it will end uh, small-scale retail politics. Yeah. Because in Iowa and New Hampshire, you, a, a candidate like Pete Buttigieg can come there and just live in Des Moines and really 10, 15 people at a time can build a following. Now there are gonna be big states, they're gonna be all at once. You're gonna to have to, it'll uh, help the candidates who have a lot of money and a lot of name recognition. And so uh, an outsider, a Pete Buttigieg, frankly, a Barack Obama, and will, I think, probably find it a little harder to come from relative nowhere and then ride a tide. I, I remember Jimmy Carter, who I covered a long time ago, sleep, sleeping in people's guest bedrooms all over the state of Iowa. But what I'm really going to miss, Jonathan, Iowa State Fair, the butter sculptures, uh, that I, I big once, competition. I once saw the Last Supper sculpted in butter, life-size. <laughs> it was a highlight of my life. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm trying to get an image of that in my head. Um, so it, a lot of was going on this week. Congress back in session, and they moved pretty quickly to address this rail strike, uh, imposing a settlement on, on rail workers, uh, bipartisan. What do you make of what they did? Is it good for the country? Is it good for the rail workers? Um, it is good for the country in that if rail, if there had been a rail strike, that would have hit 
30% of the, of the economy. It would have ground things to a standstill right at the time when, when American consumers, when Americans are most sensitive, and that is when they're doing all of their holiday shopping. I mean, remember the supply chain conversations we were having a year ago this time, people losing their minds that they, they couldn't get their gifts. Um, this had to be done. I think um, this president, of all presidents, is the the one who was able to cobble together the deal in the first place that then got rejected. It's a federal law that makes it possible for the president and Congress to impose this deal on rail workers. But um, the issues that the rail workers w were about to strike over are not insignificant. Paid sick leave is something that is... Um, that's something that they need to discuss. That's something that is not an unreasonable ask, especially when rail companies are sitting on billions upon billions of dollars in profits last year. Um, but, you know, the workers had no leverage, unlike, say, fast food workers or other workers around the country who, for whom a strike is that, that leverage point to get what they want and what they need. And they didn't get the paid sick leave. <clears throat> Yeah, and I, you know, I, it is, you know, the administration said there could have been 675,000 job losses costing billions of dollars a day. Nonetheless, I'm a little, not that I'm singing solidarity for every, uh, every, every morning, but basically the government took away the workers' right to strike or their ability to strike. And that imbalances the negotiation going, if the railroad companies think, oh, well, the government will step in and take away the ability to strike, then that alters how they're going to negotiate and sort of alters the balance. So I worry a little about the sort of the moral hazard of government stepping in. And it, somehow it reminds me in sort of an inverse case, I thought the bailout of the banks in 2008 was the right thing to do. Nonetheless, it is clear that the moral hazard, the way the government behaved, had long-term moral and cultural effects on this country because people thought the system is rigged. And if workers decide, if we lose the ability to to strike, then the system is a little rigged against us, and that could lead to some level of cynicism and distrust. But that's why you need to, this law needs to be changed. It's not like the president and Congress said, well, we'll just make you take it just by fiat. The law says that that's what they, they have the power to do that. So to do what you're saying, David, that, you know, they need to change the law to give those rail workers the opportunity to strike. And as you were saying, weighing it against what it would mean for the economy if, the, if this went on, if it wasn't resolved. Another thing the two parties were able to come together on, Jonathan, was on protecting same-sex and interracial marriage in America. What, are, what, are, what does this amount to? What's the significance? Well, I'm, I'm smiling from ear to ear as someone, an out gay married man in an interracial, mar in an interracial <laughs> marriage. I'm double, doubly covered. Look, in the grand scheme of things, this is, this is a terrific thing to have, to ensure that if Obergefell is rendered unconstitutional, my marriage will still be recognized by the, federal government, the Supreme Court decision that legalized same-sex marriage. Um, if Obergefell goes away, though, this is where the problem I have with, with the law. My marriage is protected, but if my husband and I move back to North Dakota, where he's from, same-sex marriage is banned in, by constitution, in the Constitution and in, by state law. If Obergefell goes away, same is when Dobbs overturned Roe v. Wade. Instantly, 35 states ban same-sex marriage. So if if we meet friends, a same-sex couple that wants to get married in North, North Dakota, they would have to leave the state, hmm. go to New York, go to California, go somewhere 
where marriage is same-sex marriage is legal and then come home and the state would be forced because of this law to recognize their marriage that is a burden an unfair burden on couples who all they want to do is solemnize their relationships and also protect their families because more often than not these same-sex couples want to get married either to start a family or to protect the family that they have and if congress really wants to do something to protect uh, LGBTQ Americans and certainly same-sex same-sex married couples they would pass the Equality Act it's out of the house it's been sitting in the Senate all they need to do is pass it in the lame duck and um, things would be great so how much of a step forward is this? I think it's a very significant step forward first in the matter of justice you know there, I think they're now over a billion same-sex married same-sex a billion a million a million a million a million so we're, we're, we're going to take away those people's marriages like is that pro-family so I don't think you know I, I don't think that, that would be just a tremendous wrong to do that and as Joe Biden says love is love and people should get married um, I think the the thing I'm also very hopeful about is that this represents a path out of some of the culture wars. So the, the history of this is that in 2008, the LDS Church campaigned against gay marriage in a California proposition. The blowback was so strong, they said, wait, we've got to rethink this issue. So they went to the LBGT community in Utah and said, let's have a compromise. Gay marriage will be on the books, but what's our religious freedom will be protected. So the government will not take away our tax status. And so they made this compromise. And this, this is sort of what happened here. So the, the National Association for Evangelicals supports this, the CCCU, the, all the Christian colleges support this, because they were terrified that they would get their tax status taken away uh, because of their religious beliefs. And so this was a group of people coming together across the culture war saying, what you want is to protect your marriages. What we need is to not have our tax status stay away. We want religious freedom. And so they both got what they want. They did a deal. And that's the way politics should work. We are. Uh, <laughs> I see your face, no, Jonathan. I, know, I, was, I see the look I mean, on your face. Well, only because, I mean, I, the, the religious exemptions um, offend me personally because there are some people who are going to use their personal beliefs and hide behind religion to discriminate against people like me and families like mine. And there's no, there would be no legal recourse for me and my husband or other these billion, million same-sex <laughs> married couples in the United States to hold someone accountable for not giving us the services we should constitutionally be able to avail ourselves of. That's all. I'm sympathetic to that. But as I understand this law, if, uh, if you went to a baker and said, we want you to bake our wedding cake, he still has to bake the wedding cake, as I understand it. It's mostly what they were worried about is uh, their view of scripture is that God doesn't uh, support gay marriage or same-sex marriages. And they don't, if they don't want to be forced to perform gay marriages or face losing their tax status. And I do not agree with them, but there are a lot of people in this country who believe in scripture, believe this is what scripture says, and I think it's a willing sacrifice to give people their religious freedom so we can live together. And to be clear, it's both those things. It's not, not um, putting their tax-exempt status um, to risk, but also not putting themselves at risk for denying service, i.e. Foster, um, foster care or other services in all sorts of in institutions. Only a few seconds left, but I did want to say it's a little over a week since former President Trump had dinner with Nick Fuentes, the known neo-Nazi, and every other 
uh, I think noun you can you can say that isn't positive. Um, we ask members of Congress for their reaction, and many of them are still not commenting on it. Uh, interesting. There's a glass half full or half empty. A lot did not comment, but uh, more than usual, Republicans condemn Trump more than average. <laughs> It's reprehensible. If, if, if a Republican is in leadership, they should have been out there within hours of finding out about this dinner. Um, this is what's leading to the corrosion of political discourse. And, and in our society, we have people who are openly, openly anti-Semitic and no consequences. That's outrageous. Yeah. Tough to think about. Jonathan Capehart, David Brooks, thank you both. Thanks, Jean.